You've entered Bookstorm with Kristen Civiletto and me, Chris Storm. This is a podcast devoted to best-selling books that matter, books that make a difference. We're diving down deep with beloved authors about their stories. We're exposing hot-button topics and heartfelt themes, the issues that affect each of us in our own lives as siblings, parents, partners, friends, as human beings. We're braving new ideas, fresh thoughts, hard lessons, and important truths. Those kinds of things that stay with us long after we turn the last page and close the book. Welcome back to Bookstorm Podcast, book lovers literally all over the world. What's our latest count, Kristen? We're pretty excited. 76 countries, all 50 U.S. states, more than 1,500 cities, because we're all book lovers and thanks to fantastic, talented authors like the one we have with us today. We have Andrew Hart. You'll know him as A.J. Hartley. Thrilled to have you with us, Andrew. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, we're super excited about why you're here because we do fiction and we've only had two YA young adult novels. This will be the second one. Uh, our first was Rebecca Yaros and Fourth Wing, which we loved. And for all of our listeners, we loved this too. It's called Heideke Smith, Demon Dueler. Do I have that right, Heideke? You know, we're all going to read this and have our own pronunciation, right? <laughs> Hideki. Hideki Smith, Demon Dueler. Um, it all I can say about this book is it doesn't matter if you're a young adult, it's super cool. I I loved every page. I really related to it. But before we dive in, I want to give our listeners a little bit about your bio because you've got a lot of followers, and maybe there's one thing in here that they don't know about you. AJ Hartley is also known as Andrew Hart. He's an award-winning, best-selling author of 25 mystery, thriller, fantasy, historical fiction, and young adult novels. And I really love this crossing genres, because if you're a writer, you're a writer, and why not? Thank you for doing that. Primarily, he's a solo novelist, but when we're here with him today to talk about this book, he actually wrote it, now tell me if I'm right, with your wife and your son. Hisako Osako and Kuma Hartley. Is that right? Perfect. Yes. And Kristen and I, before the show, were saying what a joy that must have been and quite an experience, which we'll have to hear more about. And Andrew was born in Northern England, but he's lived in a lot of places, including Japan. He's currently the Robinson Professor of Shakespeare Studies Emeritus at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. After an academic career, I found this really amazing, specializing in history, theory, criticism, and practice of performing Renaissance English drama. Wow, that's amazing. We're super happy to have you here with us today. And as intellectual as all that sounds, here you are writing a super cool YA book that we can all relate to. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Andrew, we're here, of course, to talk about Hideki Smith, Demon Queller. And I want to give our listeners just kind of a short summary of the factual background, just so they have an idea of what we're talking about. And I promise not to give away any spoilers. And if you want to add anything at the end, by all means, jump right on in. Uh, now, in this story, we meet Caleb 
Hideki Smith. He is a 15-year-old half-Japanese resident of Portersville, North Carolina. Now, he's not having a great high school experience. Um, he is of mixed race, and there's issues uh, that he doesn't feel like he fits in. There is some bullying going on. He's not athletic, and the girls haven't not yet noticed him. And then he accidentally burns down the town's most beloved landmark, a beautiful barn. Now, that same day, Caleb and his sister witnessed something unusual in the Great Smoky Mountains. A Shinto shrine appears before them. And then a lot of odd things start happening after that. They develop some unusual abilities, and his sister keeps turning into a fox. Now, they seek answers from an estranged grandparent, and they learn that they have a powerful family heritage. And they also learn that a dreadful being and others are trapped under the mountain, and they are trying to escape. Now, Caleb and Emily, his sister, they are working to stop this, dis this disaster and also protect Portersville. But they're also going to have to start figuring out who they really are and what does their family legacy mean to them? Did you want to add anything to that little background there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because that that last part that you said is really the the heart of of the book. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's an adventure with monsters and and um, and and battles and magic and and so on. But what the book is really about is figuring out who you are. And you know, when you were saying before that you haven't done a lot of YA, but people like YA, and I think this is one of the reasons, right, that that part of the appeal of YA literature to adults is that it takes us back to those moments when everything was new and we were sort of figuring out our adult selves. We were starting to separate ourselves from our, from our parents and the things that we simply grew up with and had absorbed. And we're trying to make the decision about who we're going to be, you know, and I think that that's the heart of what a lot of YA stories are about. And in this case, it's complicated by the fact that they are like, like my son, you know, um, Japanese American living in a place where there are not a lot of people like them and responding to sort of pressures from, from both sides of that heritage while sort of trying to carve out a sense of, of who they are as individuals. Yeah. Excellent. In fact, Chris and I were speaking about this before we got on the Zoom, and we were just talking about that important role of mythology and fairy tales and stories, because it really does show us, first of all, how we slay those monsters, but also this idea of coming into your own as a young adult. And so we see a lot of that with your character in the story of just taking on these big challenges, going through the forest, and really that's why I think it appealed so much to uh, any people of any age. Yeah, well, great. I'm, 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 I'm glad. Uh, I think that you know it, it's funny, isn't it? That that w when you're dealing with mythology from a folklore base that is not as familiar as this stuff that that a lot of us grew up with, um, that there are you find these points of commonality between different cultures the sort of archetypes almost that are rooted in in ancient story and folktale but then you also find the sort of peculiarities the things that are specific to certain cultures that are that that, that make those familiar stories somehow unfamiliar and you have to 
to find a way around them. And that's, again, part of the, the, the idea of the story that these kids are trying to navigate a world that they don't understand and have never, you know, because they grow up, even though they're Japanese American, they grow up in a, in a, in a family environment where the Japanese parts of their past have been played down and they are not informed about these things. So suddenly, you know, we're dealing with these shape-shifting demons and things, and they have no clue <laughs> what they're dealing with. So they have to connect with that culture to a certain extent to figure out how to deal with stuff. Yeah. Mm. That, that is a beautiful plot because it tells the reader, the young adult in all of us, connect with your culture, go back and look at your past. And it leads into my first question. So as I said for the readers, I loved every second of this. There's a little teen in all of us. We grow up, we say this often on the show, I still feel like I'm the same person at 16. That's still inside me. All the hurdles I went through, the bullying that we all probably go through, and we mm -hmm. could relate to this. So we root for Caleb and Emily. And I loved this idea that you placed in this book that there's an important inheritance. Let's call it maybe a responsibility, a calling passed down through Caleb's bloodline. He thought he was a, and I'm going to quote the term, a loser's loser, but things are not always what they seem. Can you expand as the writer why this is so important, not just for Caleb and Emily, but for all of us? We need to know our lineage. We want to know our ancestry, ancestry.com, 23andMe. But yet we also want to know that we're individuals, right. that we're unique and separate from all the past. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. That that's the paradox, right? That that's the sort of center of, I mean, certainly one of the big issues of of human existence, right? On the one hand, a desire to connect and be part of something, and to feel that you have this sort of history lined up behind you. This is where I come from. This is what I stand for. But then also points where you find yourself saying, "But I don't want to be this." Right. I, I, I am something different because the sum of my experiences and my interests and talents, whatever, are pushing me in a slightly different direction. And I need to be able to explore that as well. So on the one hand, so it's a balancing act, isn't it? The, the, the desire to stay connected to family and culture and heritage and all that. And at the same time, to want to figure out who you are as a, as a, a single person and that your experience as such matters you know um i grew up in a, a, a working class industrial town in northern england uh, a place that i go back to a lot and that i i love but there was a point at which i couldn't live there anymore you know because and that's when i went to japan actually but it was sort of that that experience of saying there's so much about this that i love but it also accumulates like weight around you, you know, and, and you start to feel constrained, like n no individual people necessarily, but the, the sheer fact that everybody knows who you are and they know your family and, and going back however many years or generations, all of that stuff puts you in a box and it becomes harder to, to, to escape and harder to, to, to live some of those those hopes and aspirations that are part of your private self. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that because it is so true. When my kids went away to college, I said, you're going to love it because no one knows who you used to be. You know, mm. we grew up in the same town. You were that little kid at nine who did this or the one at 10 who did this. You can never seem to get out of that. And right. Emily said this, and I, I wrote this down. We're shaped by history, but we are not defined by it. We are more than what was. I love that. Even at this age, I thought, yes, this is what we all need to hear. And I know yeah. Emily didn't really just say that. It was also Andrew Hartley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though, you know, it's funny. And as I get older, my memory gets worse and I forget what I wrote. So I was like, when you read the line, I was like, oh, that's quite good. And then she (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, I'm glad I wrote it. Thank you. Andrew, I want to dive in a little deeper in this idea of symbolism in Japanese culture and mythology. Um, We encounter a number of mythological creatures in the story. And I think we can generally refer to some of these monsters as yokai. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. One of those creatures sometimes appears as an alluring young woman. In fact, Madison, one of the high schoolers, encounters this monster as a young woman who, quote, oozed cosmopolitan sophistication and a whiff of adventure until she did not. We see other examples where this being appears to young men as a hot young woman until it's not. Hmm. What is the significance of something so evil appearing as alluring at first? Yeah, um, it's one of those things. I, I think it's very Japanese, the, this almost Zen suspicion of desire, right? That the, 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 there's, there's an idea that the ideal state is somehow neutral, not affected by your own wishes or certainly not consumed by them. The idea that that desire makes us into other things um, and that it's not always good for us. And, and for, for, uh, for most of us living in, in the West, it's quite an alien idea that we're, we're used to embracing the idea of you go for whatever you want, right? Especially within a basically capitalist individualist society, right? Um, but I think part of the problem sometimes is that we don't always know what we want. And what happens is that we channel the desires projected onto us by other people, right? I mean, you think of people who win the lottery and suddenly have all this money that they they blow on things that they never wanted before, you know, that they, they suddenly have the means to get this stuff. And that then somehow generates the desire because part of what they're doing is performing their success for other people. Right. So I think that 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 is is embedded in this idea that there's something um, that things that are alluring and appealing are sometimes suspect, you know, Uh, and that the more you pursue something, the more you commit to something, the more it consumes you, controls you and distorts who you are, which, of course, you know, is what's happening the other way around, because, as we said, these are shapeshifters. in in a story about people trying to figure out what the true identity is. And that's one of the great things about Japanese folk culture, that so many of these yokai are are shapeshifters. So you never know what you're dealing with. And I I love this idea that the person talking to you might not be who you think they are, because on some very basic level, it's always true. 
that their private self is not exactly what we see, you know? Um, and of course, in, in, in Japanese folklore, that becomes literally true. It might be a, a tanuki or a kitsune or, or in this case, a noparabo or any, any number of other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what you said in the beginning, you know, that really rang true because we do pursue those mountaintop experiences, you know, that that freedom of, you know, this is absolute joy, I'm at the top of the world, but that Japanese notion of being a little suspect about those high, high highs or the low, low lows, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. And, and yeah, you could I- see- and and there's a downside to that too, right? That that within yeah. Japanese culture, part of the issue is there's a distrust of people who stand out um, of anything that stands out above the the normative experience, right? There's that old Japanese proverb that translates as something like, "The nail that stands up will be hammered down," right? Mm. Um, that uh, there's still a sense in in a lot of traditional Japan that that being extraordinary is questionable, that it's better to be the same as other people. I think especially in youth culture, that's getting challenged in Japan a lot. But I think that there is that's the downside of it, that the that not wanting, not aspiring, not trying, not striving to be an individual in that Western tradition can also be repressive. That's interesting. So whichever way we go. That, that really almost goes in with my next question. So both Caleb and Emily dealt with being a racial minority. In the Japanese co- culture, you don't want to stand out to be better, but maybe we also don't want to stand out in any other way, especially when you're a teenager, you just want to fit in. It, Caleb struggled with bias and ignorant assumptions because his father was white, his mother, Asian, they were American. His mother was born in America, but for some ignorant reason, people just wouldn't see it that way. Even the antagonists, the enemy, perceived them as being, and I'm going to quote, half, not whole of anything. Caleb started to believe this lie, and he thought, I'm mixed, I'm deluded, I'm inadequate. Boy, I'll tell you as the reader, that just made us love him all the more. We're like, no, you're not any of those things. I would like to believe right now in the present day that we're a generation of inclusion, that we celebrate differences. But I think as the writer, you showed us some kind of a hard truth here, that racism still exists, bullying still exists. How did Caleb and Emily's new calling, their new powers Prove to world the world that they were different, and maybe sometimes different is a good thing. Mm. Well, I think I think the question is to what extent they're proving it to the world, as opposed to simply proving it to themselves, right? Because much of what goes on in the novel, of course, in the end, people don't know happened. The other the people in the larger community, and that in some ways is better, right? That that that. It's not about it's not about becoming a hero for the larger world. It's about recognizing power and ability that is specific to your own weird, quirky, odd, all the things that made you not part of the larger community are now strengths, you know, or are, are keys to the strengths that you develop. And that that's grounding and centering and um and empowering. Right. Even if they then have to say, okay, now we go back into our lives 
Uh, and we're not going to show people that we're shape-changing superheroes or whatever, but we can stand a little taller and be a little more confident and self-possessed because we have learned something of our own inner worth, regardless of what other people think, you know? And as you were saying before, some of the some of the, the trouble that that Hideki, that Caleb and Emily have comes from both sides, right? That that there are the obvious villains of, of one kind or another. And then there are people even in within their own heritage who say, Well, you're you can't do this because you're not fully you're not fully Japanese, you know. And this is something, unfortunately, <laughs> that I sort of have learned watching my son grow up um as a as a mixed race kid um and you know it's also part, having lived in japan i always felt much as i i love japan and we go back a lot but there was also a sense that i felt like i would never be fully accepted there i would never be completely integrated that there was always a point at which i would be sort of kept at arm's length a little um, and I think that that's a common feature of, of Japanese culture. And I think that that sense that the the homogeneousness, is that a word? Homogeneity? Something along those lines. The, the, of, of the culture has historically kept people who were not part of it at arm's length. So there is an uncertainty about how to treat people who are only half Japanese in the same way that, as as you said, you know, they experience those people experience a, a different kind of racism or ethnocentrism or bias of one kind or another, you know, um, from people who uh, who who don't look them look like them who look more like me, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm sort of in the book as the idiot father who has no idea what's going on, <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but but you know. It's some of the stuff, and I, I said some of this in the afterword at the end about because um, I w had been working on this on a version of this story for many many years, and I kept trying to tell it in different ways. And sometimes it was set in Japan, and sometimes it, it and generically it was a different story. And it was really a question of watching my son sort of figure out who he was, and and starting to connect with his with the Japanese side of his heritage that you know was the birthplace of of this novel right became something completely different and you know not anyone could have written this novel because i loved as i'm reading this knowing that your son gave input into this mm -hmm. and that you actually are living this life it's very mm -hmm. authentic and i think you brought issues in here that made that the average person wouldn't realize and thank you for that it's also important Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, and and it's, you know, some of it's a little uncomfortable to talk about sometimes, but uh, but yeah, it's um, it, obviously it is a, a central, important part of the story, and and one that defined where it came from and what it was going to be about. And yeah, my, you know, I, I'm I obviously I'm the primary writer, um, and my son and my wife's contributions initially were mostly long conversations over a long period of time about things that I didn't completely understand or wasn't experiencing in the ways that that they were. And then after I've done the first draft, then they come in editorially and, and help me adjust. And this is too much. This is not enough, blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, so yeah, it, it was good to have them sort of integrally part of the, of the process.
Thank you. In your story, Joey, who is non-binary, offers wisdom to Caleb throughout the story. Caleb harbored a growing anger at those who mercilessly bullied him. And after watching Caleb flex his power over a bully, Joey cautions him. They repeat a line from Hamlet, and I want to quote this, treat every man after his dessert, and who shall escape whipping? Do you think that Caleb had to learn to harness this growing rage um, in order to fully understand and use his gifts? And, and do you think that control is a core tenet of maybe Japanese mythology and culture? Yeah, I think so. I think both of those are good points. Yes, I think he, on the one hand, he has the the abilities that he has gives him an outlet to stand up for himself, which I think in in many ways is a good thing. And it's a satisfying thing, you know, when you see the the bullied person get the better of the bully, right? And this is a familiar trope in TV and movies and books. But um, it's also potentially dangerous it's not enough to be able to out muscle the people who have been muscling you right because in the end all you're doing is becoming the same thing as them and leaving behind a version of who you were to start with right so i think joey who's in that kind of interim position themselves who who sees the world from the position of of somebody who doesn't fit into the the traditionally available categories um is able to sort of remind caleb that even as we evolve even as we change as people we want to hold on to the things that we value in ourselves right that we don't want to it, it's great to aspire to be better in certain respects but we don't want to lose track of of the people that we are, and we don't want to abuse the power that we have. I mean, at the risk of sounding like Spider-Man, though, of course, all YA novels at some point sound like Spider-Man, with <laughs> power comes great responsibility, right? <laughs> this is always a question when you have any kind of superhero narrative that there's a point at which the, the power that this person has is going to potentially go dark if not yeah. kept in check. I love that because it's such an expression of maturity and how we continue to grow, you know, even as adults. And, mm. and again, I think that's another reason why even as adults, we're connecting with so many things in this story because we're always wrestling with those issues. It's great. And, and before I let you go, I have to ask this. Now, I may be reading too much into this. And I know sometimes authors do love it when people do that. Well, this is a great idea. I didn't mean it, but Sure. The burning down of that old historic barn that really was nothing important at all. It was being treasured for no good reason. Did that have any symbolism in the burning down of sociological expectations, um, Our uh, this push to fit in and be the, uh, the norm? Did that have any, any symbolism there? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the community as an the, the community ideal in timber, right? It's like this is who we are. And it doesn't include you, right? Caleb and Emily and people like them. So, you know, which is why I think that there's a moment at which people think he's done it on purpose as an act of rebellion, and he hasn't. It's sheer Hideki incompetence, you know. Um, but 
but it does, I think, represent something of them saying, you know, it, it's not good enough for us in any community to say, this is what we stand for. This is who we are because we have always done this. We've always been this way. We've always done it that way. And that's not enough. And, and I think it's part of the tension that Caleb and Emily run into with some of their Japanese stuff because Japan is very tradition driven. And a lot of elements of contemporary Japanese culture still follow these kinds of ideas. And people are always surprised when they go to Japan to find they think it's going to be super high tech. And it's not. You know, it's a very cash driven economy, people carrying hundreds of dollars around in cash all the time. And the answer always is this is how we have always done things, you know. And there are movements within Japan to change some of these things that have left Japan behind technologically, even though they were the country that generate, that innovated a lot of the stuff that we now take for granted. But it hasn't become standard within Japanese daily life because there's this profound sense of the, the value of tradition, which in many ways is a great thing, right? And you walk around places like Kyoto and there's these extraordinary temples that have been there for hundreds of years and and it's fantastic and it's, and it's great but it also comes with this unwillingness to change you know uh, which is sometimes a bad thing so i think yeah i think the the accidental torching of the barn is caleb's unconscious rebellion against a notion of cultural value that doesn't include him Mm -hmm. yeah. I loved it. I'm glad he burned it down. Let's just <laughs> say for the record. And I'm going to show the book again for all of our YouTube watchers. Do not miss it. You're going to love it. You heard a little bit of it here. This is a very entertaining book. It's going to touch the heart of each one of us who was once a, once a teenager, maybe still working our way through some of those teen issues in our lives. But it also has a little bit of wisdom going on in there, Andrew, I have to say. <laughs> And in the meantime, you're going to want to connect with AJ Hartley. You can find him on Facebook. He's on YouTube. He has a YouTube channel. Um, are you still doing a blog on what's going on? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, on my on my on my uh, regular um, uh, website web, web page. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> words. I don't know. And then you also tell me what this is. You you're a patron on. Patreon. Uh, the, there is a, a, a an outfit called Patreon where people can pledge small amounts of money to uh, help artists to continue to do certain things that appeal to them. In my case, it's almost entirely people who want me to keep making videos about Japanese rock music. Okay, <laughs> okay. There's a niche for that. Sure, why not? And you have work. And one more thing. T Public. What what is that? Oh, T Public is just a um, a site where you can design your own T-shirts and things, and people can go and you know buy buy a buy a shirt connected to merchandise or something. Yeah. Okay, that goes back to the very first word I said when you came on. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure meeting you. We love the book. Hope Thank to see you, you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Chris, that was such a cool discussion. There is so much to mine in the story, you know, ranging from the symbolism, Japanese culture, the issues of bullying. And there were a couple of things that really stood out for me here. 
one of them is this idea of being half of one thing and half of another, and this feeling that you're not a whole of anything. And I think a lot of people struggle with that, not just in racial issues, but maybe sexuality or faith. I mean, we've got a a lot of different things going on culturally. And I just wonder how many people wrestle with this. What do you think? And, And how about geographically? Or living from one country to another. But it's like, it was reminds me of my first or second question to Andrew. I believe with all my heart that we're growing smarter and wiser and more accepting. I see us, especially in the publishing world, we celebrate differences. We're looking for underrepresented voices. And I'm so proud of us for that. So it takes a while to change. And I really feel we're headed in that direction. But in the meantime, those of us who grew up with those prejudices and small minds, we're probably going to carry that with us for most of our lives because we lived it. And that's why books like this are important. I agree. Oh, I agree. They challenge you in ways you don't realize you're being challenged. And also to kind of see it play out on the page, you know, gives you a reference point where it's not, you know, somebody coming at you and criticizing you, you can kind of see it in this character wrestling with the issues, which again, is one of the reasons we love fiction. So much. And, you know, I have to say, I wrote this down. I loved when Caleb said, I am not even remotely the hero type. Well, I just thought we all say that. Do we not all say that? We step up for a job, a relationship, a move, uh, whatever. And some little part of it thinks, oh, I don't know. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I'm not good enough. I loved that he got these powers, thoroughly enjoyed them, but here's where the butt comes in. And I wish I could say this to Andrew. He still had his own free will. Apart from all these powers, he still had the same old him inside who had to decide right from wrong, good from bad. Should I use them? Should I not use them? The core was there and I loved it. Did you notice? Did you catch that? Oh yeah. And I love the fact that he's 15, right? Because he's right at that precipice of becoming a young man and really figuring out, like you said, the core of who he is. So that's a pretty cool story. It was just so much fun. You know, I do love young adult. We all love young adult. They usually get into uh, movies, Netflix series. I've watched all of them. This would be a fantastic Netflix series, by the way, if anyone's listening. And um, it's just been a pleasure. We've had such a good time. We've got a full lineup. We have so many authors. I cannot name the book, but I'm going to give you the author name just to give you a little tease. We have Nick Petrie, Jill Shalvis, Mary Kubica. We have... C.J. Ray, Michelle Gable, Emma Gray, Dervla McTiernan, Susan Mallory, Lisa Unger coming back for the second time, Heather Gudenkoff gracing us with her presence for a second time, um, Liza Palmer, and Christopher Reich. Wow. And listeners, you are in 76 countries and territories, all 50 states and 1,500 cities. We are thankful for you. We love that you are tuning in to hear these fantastic authors. We've got 100 plus 
authors and episodes. So please tune in, listen, and go back in our, our storage there and see if you can find additional books or authors you may not have discovered yet. You can also stay on the radar with us. We are at bookstormpodcast.com. We're on Facebook, on Instagram, on X, on TikTok. We are on YouTube. You can click on and see these authors in person. And we just welcome that input. And we love to hear from you. Till next time, listeners, one of the best ways to brave the storm is to dive down deep into life-changing fiction. <laughs>